0: Well, good morning. Father's Day. We're diving back into Exodus this week, um, as we've just had read, so you can keep your Bible open there. Um, yeah, look, we've already said a lot about Father's Day. It's been, it's been fun. Um, thank you for your prayers, Sherry. Um, beautiful. To uphold men and fathers in that way. Um, privileged to be a dad. Um, grateful to have a dad and a good one. Um, More than anything, though, to to have a heavenly father who's just phenomenally outstanding, what what we truly long for and need. Um, uh, Our homes need good, solid men, godly men and dads. Our church needs solid fathers and men. Our society needs solid fathers and men. And so wouldn't it be awesome if God was using our homes and our church to keep raising up good, godly young men who learn how to walk faithfully with the Lord and put on display ultimately um, the God who loves us and knows us, our Father in heaven. Um, there you go. It's good stuff. All right. Keep your Bible open there. Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be looking at chapter 28 and 29. And this week we look at the concept of priesthood or priest. Are you ready for some priest stuff this morning? Ready for that on Father's Day? Because that's where we're going to go. That's where the passage takes us. And so let me just yeah, start with this question. When, when I say the word priest, you know, what's the image that first comes to mind for you? When you hear priest, Um, I wonder whether it's um, a man in a robe, yeah, Um, performing religious ceremonies. Maybe some of those ceremonies or rites are a little bit mysterious and magical. Um, Maybe there's smoke. Maybe there's candles. Maybe there's chanting. Maybe there's some hand signals. Um, There's priests in all different religions, that might be what comes to mind for you when you hear the word priest. Um, but I want to bring to you this morning that the concept of a priest is actually quite basic. A priest, you, you could say a key part of being a priest is to simply be a mediator. Do you know what that word means, mediator? Maybe some of you have had some mediation in your life or you know people who have um, two different Parties who are in disagreement sometimes need mediation to be brought together. Um, That's a priestly role, really, the concept of mediator. If I was to get out the front here, I I was going to get people out, but I think we've already had a few people out the front here today, although you're looking at me like you want it. Um, If I was to act out... Um, the priestly role here, what I do is I put someone on this side of me here with their arms crossed and another person over this side with their arms crossed, and I'd get one of you to come and stand between them and just try to get them to uncross their arms and bring one of their arms this way, one of their arms that way until they meet in the middle and they're brought together. That's the concept of mediation. That is what a priest does. A priest tries to bring together... Two disagreeing or warring parties. Yep, that's, that's really at the heart of what a priest is. Um, now, why would it be that we would need a priest? Why would it be that humans or God's people would need a priest in regards to them relating to God? Like, what, what does the priest need to do? Well, there's an issue between humanity and God. That's a big enough issue that mediation is needed and some pretty serious mediation. There's actually a serious issue between people and God. Um, There's a war between people and God. Um, It's not always so obvious, but that war is so real and so serious that a priest is needed. Now, the war is described in the Bible as sin. Uh, that's what causes the war between people and God. It's sin. And sin is the human condition, the heart condition that makes humans just want to reject the God who made them and rebel from the God who loves them and disagree with how he says to live. That's, that's actually warfare. It can be polite sometimes on the surface, but actually it's a serious issue deep down. There's war between sinful humans and their God. It's such a big issue that it puts a a whopping big chasm between God and humans generally um, and even God's own people. Um, And it's the kind of chasm that can't be fixed by humans deciding, well, let's just build a bridge and we'll get our way to God. No, we we can't build the bridge. Um, What we need is a mediator to come between us and actually bring together the two warring parties. We need a priest. And this is what you see in Scripture. It's what you see through history, what God does in order to bring his people to himself. There's there's the role of priesthood um, that helps it happen. So here's um, here's, here's where we're going to head this morning. I've got some images for you there. Um, and this is like the movement of priests in the scriptures. You start over here with the concept of a temple priest or a or a tabernacle priest, which is what we're getting described for us here in Exodus chapter twenty-eight and twenty-nine. But then the next priest who comes is Jesus, and then but then we find ourselves today, us as Christians, in the role of priest or as a priesthood. So that's where we're going to land today. That's the movement we're going to take, and I hope you can follow me and come with me. There is a, um, a handout there and on the back of course, is, there's some room to scribble notes if this is helpful for you. We're going to go to a few different passages um, and I, I will need you to come there with me at these different passages so get ready to do a little bit of flicking. But there's the movement. So we're obviously we're starting this morning um, or at the start now with the concept of temple or um, tabernacle priest. Um, And and what I'll get you to do is turn open to chapter 28 and 29. And um, we didn't read chapter 28, but maybe you looked at it during the week in your home group. And during chapter 28, what you get is Aaron and his sons, or what's described for the priests is what they need to wear. And there's some pretty... um, So I'll get you to just go to that first one if you can, Steve. I didn't talk about the passages, did I? We'll get to them. Can you go back to just... um, No, no, go forward. No, go... So it's just priests up there. Keep going. Go the other way. Keep going. Yeah, next one. There you go. Here's where we are. All right? So we're chapter 28 and 29, and the first thing you hear about these priests is some pretty elaborate clothes they need to wear. Have you dug into the details of what priests need to wear, and have you considered why they need to wear that? Because the garments, it's pretty excessive. There's a breastplate there that goes on the tabernacle priest, which has got 12 precious stones on it. Do you know what the 12 precious stones are? They're symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. So as the priest steps into the tabernacle, into the presence of God, he goes there representing all 12 tribes of Israel. He goes there on behalf of God's people. Someone needs to enter on behalf of God's people, and that's what the priest does. He comes wearing those precious stones, representing all of God's people. Um, the ephod that he wears has got layers. There's extravagant fabric and ornaments and it's actually got the names of the tribes embroidered onto the, the, um, the ephod as well. You see a robe, you see a tunic, you see a turban, you see a sash, you even see some special undies underneath there when you read it. You don't see it here, but you can read about that in verse 42 of chapter 28. There's gold bells, there's no shoes. It's intricate, it's detailed. The priest has got to dress just right Why all the detail? Well, here's the thing. Not only is the priest representing God's people, you know, like the proxy that steps in to the presence of God on behalf of God's people, the priest is also representing God himself. And a lot of the detail that goes into what the priest wears is really similar to the tabernacle itself. It's like the priest is the tabernacle, or the priest is, and and you know all the details about the tabernacle are meant to put on display the glory of God. So as this priest is to wear all these clothes, he's representing God's people, and he's representing God's glory, all in the one person. That's what's going on with the clothes. He's the mediator. He's the one who's bringing together the two parties, God and his people. When you get to chapter 29, you get the consecration of the priest, which is Aaron and his sons. There's a little tie-in for Father's Day for us on some level. You know What a privilege for Aaron to be able to step into this role of priesthood with his boys and for them to join him in this act of ministry. Um, and and they're, they're consecrated. That takes a long time to do. And then you get their duties that they're to perform. And they're to perform these duties as priests every day. It's an everyday thing. And we'll pick it up there in verse 38. Have a look at what we just read. Verse 38 of chapter 29. This is what you are to offer on the altar regularly each day. Two lambs a year old. Offer one in the morning and the other at twilight. So every day, this is, just catch this, every day the priests have got to go into the tabernacle or the temple um, and offer a lamb in the morning and a lamb at night. I mean, there's other big sacrifices throughout the year where larger animals are offered. Um, you know, around larger celebrations. But this is an everyday thing that the priests are doing. They are to slaughter the animal. They're to sprinkle the blood, and that will be a sin offering. So the priest offers a sin offering as he comes to God. It's a. It's it's. And and I tell you when you. We read about it and we know about it, but if you were to enter the tabernacle or enter the temple and see the amount of slaughter that's going on and the amount of blood that gets thrown around so constantly, it would be, quite, it'd be, it'd be pretty in your face. It, 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 and it's meant to be striking. It would be like an abattoir where there's a lot of animals being slaughtered and a lot of blood being thrown around and it's quite confronting. And here's the deal. It's meant to be confronting when you go to the temple. The amount of blood is meant to be quite confronting. It's meant to be a daily, heavy reminder of the seriousness of sin that puts us at war with God. And it's meant to happen over and over and over again because God's people and people generally tend to forget the seriousness of sin and how it puts us at war with the one who made us and loves us. And so these sacrifices are to be offered every day. And, and you might sit back from that, and if you're new to these things or you've never really understood the sacrificial system, you might think, why did blood need to be shed? Like, well, surely there was other ways to remind us about the, the, the issue between us and God. Why did blood need to be shed? God is so holy and we are so broken in our sin, that we cannot just waltz casually into the presence of a holy God. His own people could not just stroll into his presence and it was all cool. No, there needed to be these constant sacrifices and reminders of how heavy sin is. It's not an easy thing to bring people to God. It's not, it's, it's not an easy thing for them to be able to dwell. In fact, people like you and I, with the reality of sin, cannot step into the presence of God and survive. Yeah? We can't. Sinful people can't dwell in the presence of a holy God and live. It's just not possible. If you come near to God, the holy God, you must die Or something must die on your behalf. Yep. Or someone must die on your behalf. Sin is that serious. Which is why there needs to be blood thrown around. The ultimate symbol of death. Yep. Hence all the blood. The people as they come and attempt to step into the presence of God become hyper aware as they're confronted day after day by all the blood getting thrown around and the sacrifices being made, hyper-aware of your sin. Now, I don't think any of us really want to live day-to-day hyper-aware of our sin because it's quite a burden and it's quite confronting. And you might even be here today thinking, I don't want to hear about it, Tim. But I tell you what, if there's anything that's going to put it in our face, it's going to be the whole concept of the sacrificial system and the priesthood. I mean, why did that need to happen? Day after day. Why did there need to be a priesthood? Why did there need to be sacrifices? There's a serious issue. It's called sin. Now, that daily sacrifice might have been uh, pretty tedious and ongoing. And so isn't it wonderful that that's not the scenario we live in now? Isn't it awesome that we're not stuck needing to go daily or weekly or monthly to the temple and slaughter an animal? Because things have moved on from this time. Yep. With the coming of Jesus, the whole concept of priest and priesthood has been changed and and this 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 act of priest has been come to an end, yeah so let, let's move on. If you go back to that original the next slide, see it moves from temple priest or tabernacle priest, exodus 29 now to Jesus, the priest, you know, like that little picture of Jesus? I've kind of blurred them out a little bit so you don't get too focused on details, but you kind of. Yeah, have you ever Googled Jesus pictures? It's some funny pictures there, yeah? Anyway, that's a little picture I found. Um, There's Jesus. Now, why would you call Jesus the priest? Like, do you consider him to be a priest? Have you ever considered him that way? Um, And and if you haven't, then would you turn to Hebrews chapter 10 with me and have a look at how Hebrews chapter 10 describes Jesus. I'll flick there as well. Hebrews chapter 10. In fact, what you what you discover is that Jesus is not simply the priest; he's also the sacrifice, which is why he is the ultimate priest. Hebrews chapter ten. It's before James. There it is. Found it. We're going to look at just a couple of verses here in chapter ten, and we'll we'll actually go from the beginning of chapter ten. We'll start there in verse one. Have you got it there in front of you? This is looking back at the sacrificial system, you know, summarised by the word law. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never be, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to God. Just pause there for a minute. Um, the new thing comes with Jesus, and this is reflecting back on the old, Um The old priesthood is a shadow of what's to come. It's just a preview of what's to come. And when Jesus comes, what's really made obvious here is that these sacrifices that are made endlessly year after year, they cannot make perfect those who draw near. So if you look back at the sacrificial system and you think um, that that actually dealt with sin, we get reminded here, no, it never did. Those sacrifices didn't deal with sin. They were just meant to make God's people aware Hyper aware and remind them about the reality of sin. If they did deal with sin, then why did they need to keep being offered time and time again? That's what it goes on in verse two to say. Otherwise, they would have stopped being offered, for the worshippers would have been cleansed once and for all, and would have not had would not and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. So, so the sacrifices that happened every day didn't actually remove sin. Yeah, it didn't didn't work. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins, daily and annual. Yep, a reminder, not actually the solution. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And then you get to verse 5, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, and and you've got a quote here from Jeremiah and Psalm that's together, and, and here's what Jesus says as he comes. Well, he quotes this in some level through his ministry. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. In other words, he's saying to God, you're not wanting us to continue in this sacrifice and offering that we've been in. He says, but a body you prepared for me. There's your first clue about how Jesus, this new priest, is going to offer a different kind of sacrifice. He says, you don't want me to continue with those daily sacrifices, but you've given me this body. You've prepared this body for me. And this is going to be key to my new priestly role. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. That, that line, here I am, is beautiful. There's Jesus, God the Son, in full submission um, before the Father, coming to earth in his new priestly role and saying, well, here I am. This body is what you've prepared for me. Um, and I'm going to enter into and fulfill and bring an end to the sacrificial system, what I'm about to do. Now, he he kind of repeats himself there in verse 8. Pick it up in verse 9. Then he said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So there's the kicker. There it comes, as Jesus comes, what is the sacrifice that he offers? It's not lambs day after day, it's not bulls, it's not goats. He actually hands over his own body and that is what is sacrificed for God's people that puts an end to the temple sacrifices and an end to the tabernacle sacrifices. Um, Read on verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, you can underline those two words, but when this priest, this is Jesus, the new priest, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, meaning done, finished, No more sacrifice needed. When Jesus offered himself and had his blood shed on the cross, it was the final one, the finished work, the one actually that takes away the sin. And so here's Jesus as the priest, the ultimate priest, offering his body as the ultimate sacrifice. You you don't find a priest like this in any other religion in history anywhere in the world. There's no priest that offers himself as the sacrifice, only in Christianity. Only in the Bible do you get God's son coming as the priest and offering himself as the ultimate sinless sacrifice. Yeah? It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. We read on. Um, and um, Right hand of God, verse 13. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Look at verse 14. For by one sacrifice... He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. There you go. One sacrifice. One and done. Yeah. This is Jesus the priest who comes on our behalf and offers himself in this way. Now, if you just turn the page, or I need to turn the page in my Bible and go to verse 19, is where you get some applications that go on a little bit of so what. Yeah. I've got a page that's there. He is. He's hiding. Sticking behind the other one, didn't want to come out. Um, if you actually look there from verse, we'll, we'll go from verse 19 because this is, if, if, we're kind of a bit quieter this morning and I, I, although I can see some eyes, you're with me. Um, if you're thinking, yeah, cool, priest, priest, Jesus, the priest, sacrifice, that's good. Here's the application for us. Here's what it's meant to mean for our lives. If someone has come and sacrificed themselves so that we can now um, be brought to God. Here's, here's what it means for us. And this is exciting. Look at look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. So what does the blood of Jesus do? It gives us confidence that we can now step into the presence of God. Prior to Jesus' sacrifice, how can there be confidence? But now there is. You can have confidence that you can actually walk in and survive and dwell with a perfectly holy God. Not, not only do you not die, but you get to live with him. Look at this. By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, and then we get three let us statements. If, if this is the case... If we can now enter the presence of God and, and come and be with Him with confidence, what are you going to do with that? Well, look at here's three uses, And I think I've got a, the next slide there, Steve. Here's the three things that we now have the privilege of doing. And this is not what you have to do, although this is what you get to do. Yep. Since we now have confidence to approach our holy God, verse 22, let us draw near to him with a sincere heart and with full assurance um, that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed. There you go. If if, if you're able to come and draw near, let us draw near. Like, do it. Um, we, We do it initially when you first come to Christ. You draw near to him. And you, you, you do it continually for the rest of your life. You keep drawing near to Him. You keep coming close to Him. You keep desiring to be in His presence. You keep desiring to want to walk closely with Him. This is what we can do now. This is what we get to do now. Um, and, and, you know, we have our Draw Near series once a year where we try and take a few weeks to think about our practices of drawing near to God. Let me just ask you, how are you going? withdrawing near to God regularly daily I know most of us struggle to to, to do it in a, in a way that you're really proud of most of us feel like we we don't get there as often as we want but you, you know where you need to be more than any other place today any day it's actually near God with God Walking with him, knowing him, enjoying his love, being in his presence, delighting in him. Um, let us draw near. This is what you get to do now. So, so take advantage of what is on offer for you here. Be with him. Your heart's been sprinkled, your body's been washed. Second one is persevere. Now, the language you actually get there, verse 24, is let us, no, no, um, let us, verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope. Uh, I think persevere is a way of describing holding unswervingly to the hope. Um, Brothers and sisters, there are going to be moments, and maybe you're in one right now. There are going to be moments where you are tempted to walk away from the Lord because it's hard to follow Him. There's going to be times when you're just going to be bored of it. There's going to be times when it just doesn't look or feel as exciting as other things. There are going to be times when you're not sure whether you think it's worth it. Or there's going to be whole seasons of a life where you get distracted by many other things and you'll be tempted to put your time and energy into so many things you can turn around and 10 or 15 years have gone by and you haven't drawn closer to God if you actually be honest you've moved further away from him and that can be a slow drift here's here's the encouragement Um, persevere don't let go stay close through all the different seasons of life whatever the season is that you're in right now and the hardships that are coming your way persevere persevere hold unswervingly latch on and do not let go your God is faithful stay with him commit recommit to him constantly persevere yeah keep going um, and the third one there I say, spur on and that 's the language you get there. look at verse twenty four Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds so here's a um, here, here's a look if we can enter into the presence of God and we can do it together, um, one of the encouragements is why don't you spend some time encouraging others to do that as well Let, let's spur one another on towards love and good deeds this is This is like the ministry of Christian brothers and sisters to each other that we get the privilege of. Encouraging, urging, building each other up. You know that word spur, to spur on. Do you know what a spur is? I'm not a cowboy, but I understand this concept. Often cowboys will have a spur on their boots. Why do they have a spur on their boots? It's it's, it's pretty heavy. It's so you can dig it into the ribs of the horse that you're sitting on to get the thing going. You know, it's, it's to give the giddy up. Yep. And so th- this is, an. sometimes if you sneak a spur under your mate's horse's saddle, I don't know much about horses, but I'm assuming people do this to each other. Sneak a spur, and when he hops up on it, boom, this thing's going to take off. Spur one another on. Do you, do you get the picture here? It's, it's actually, it's pretty front-footed. It's actually using, taking the initiative to encourage your brothers and sisters to get going again. And and you can only do that if you're noticing what's happening for your brothers and sisters. So let me ask you this question. Um, If you're going well, that's great. Are you noticing some family or friends or brothers and sisters who are just, they're slowing down in their walk? They need some encouraging. They need some urging. They need some spurring on. Well, spur them on. Yeah, in love, spur your brothers and sisters on toward love and good deeds. I mean, it goes on, and it says, "Let us not give up meeting together." And maybe it's a brother or sister who you feel like is sliding in that regard. It, and it's one thing to kind of notice it, and it's another thing to start praying about it, and actually, and, and ask, "What could I do about this?" Yep, yeah. this is our ministry to each other—to spur one another on. Yep, um, and I've actually. Um, Yeah, there's some commands that come from that. Now we're going to move from temple to Jesus to us. And um, when I say us here, let, let me be really clear. I'm not saying that we as Christians replace the role of Jesus. We don't bring the priestly role of Jesus to an end. No, no, his role continues, but it continues through us. Have you ever considered yourself to be a priest? Because we get some language in 1 Peter chapter 2 that's really worth noticing and considering and allowing it to shape your identity. Um, Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. It'll be just a few pages to the right if you are in your Bible. 1 Peter chapter 2. This is one of my favourite chapters, chapter 2 of 1 Peter. And and go to verse 9 and have a look at the language there. Chapter 2, verse 9. But you, speaking to Christians, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Catch that? A holy nation, a people, God's possession. Do you catch that? Royal priesthood? Do, do Do you think that's what we are? A priesthood? Do you consider yourself to be a priest among other priests? And if you were to consider yourself to be a priest, do you understand what that means for your life? You know, I acted out priesthood just a minute ago, didn't I, by saying a priest is someone who brings together two warring parties. But if we're the royal priesthood, part of our role as Christians, your role is to, with your life, in any way you can, bring people to God. Now, that's usually a frightening job description for most of us to consider that. And and and, and I want to make sure we understand this is not to replace Jesus' role in that, but he now works by his Spirit through us to actually enable people to come to God. Um, It's where the phrase priesthood of all believers comes from. Maybe you've heard that before. Um, We're a priesthood. Um, and, And that doesn't mean we need to wear robes. It doesn't mean we need to do anything fancy that looks magical or anything like that. Um, What it means, it actually goes on to say really clearly here, so I'll grab the next one if I can, Steve. Read on in the passage and it says, I'll read from the start of verse 9 again, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So here's who you are. You're a priesthood so that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So here's a big part of your role as a priest, to be a declarer of God's praises. Yep, key part of being a priest. You're someone who can testify and speak about the goodness of God in Jesus. Yep. And you might say, surely I can just live a Christian life. Tell me, we'll get to that in a little bit. But no, no, it's not simply about living. It is about speaking. And in your speech, is there declaration about the goodness of God? Like in small ways, everyday ways, are you thanking God for what's going on around you so people around you keep being reminded that, yeah, God's good and he gives us all good things each day? Does it just flow out of your mouth? You know some people call it God talk or being able to you know slip God into a conversation and it 's probably something you did if you 're not if, if you never learned how to do it, you need to be deliberate about it initially, but then it 'll become a habit, and God will be part of what you speak about without freaking people out, part of what you speak about in your normal conversation throughout the day and have moments where actually you are declaring the praises of him yeah and not just declaring the praises of a God who puts beautiful things in front of our faces. But what is it declaring praises about particularly? Um, Declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So you testify that I used to be in darkness and I've been called into the light. The lights have come on for me. My life has been changed and I can't help but to to declare the praises of the one who did all that work to bring me. Yeah. So there's a key part of you being a priest is to be someone who opens your mouth. And I don't know whether recently you've had opportunities um, and, and, you, and they were there begging, um, but you pulled back in what you said. You, kind of, you just weren't sure how to say it or you were worried about what they'd think if you said it like that. Opportunities come our way every day. And it doesn't matter the setting that you're in. And if you find yourself thinking, yeah, I just I missed a great opportunity there, don't just get stuck in shame and go, I'm terrible at this, I'll never be good at it. There's another opportunity coming this week. Yep. There's another one coming. And you're a priest and he calls you to declare his praises, the praises of his goodness. What a privilege to be able to speak about the praises of someone else. Yep. This is your opportunity. Will you take it this week? Declare his praises. But of course, it's not simply declare his praises. It's live an authentic life as well, which is my way of describing what it goes on to say here. Um, Look at verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and aliens to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. So I had that verse on, on my wall as a teenager for years and years, or maybe later teenager, early 20s, because I'm like, this is this is what I need to hear. I need to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. You will have desires that are not good. We live in a world that says, follow the desires of your heart. The Bible will say, be careful which desires you follow. In fact, whatever you do, don't simply follow the desires of your heart. Whatever you do, do, do not simply pursue the dreams that happen to be there in your heart because some of them are sinful. You're broken, so don't just follow your desires. And What does it say there? It says, um, abstain from sinful desires because they war against your soul. In other words, your soul's relationship with a good God. Um, sinful desires war want to break up your relationship with God. So be very careful how you live. You don't simply be a person who speaks. In fact, if you've come across a person who loves to talk about Jesus all the time, but their life does not reflect what comes out of their mouth, you learn really quickly to stop listening to their words. Yep. Be a speaker and have a life to back it up. Notice the desires that are sinful and do not follow them. Do not obey them. "'Be careful which desires you pursue. "'Live such good lives among the pagans "'that though they accuse you of doing wrong, "'they may see your good deeds "'and glorify God on the day he visits. "'Live such good lives among the pagans and there's an encouragement, isn't there, to not, not to um, hive off into a holy huddle up on a hill and form a little Christian commune where you don't have any connection um, with the pagan or the secular world. No, no, live good lives among the pagans, yeah? Yeah, yeah, we ought we, we to be in the world, not of it, but in it, yep. Live good lives, not, not just generally good lives, but lives that are honouring to God, obedient to him, And do it among your friends and family that don't know Christ. And when you live that way, there'll often be backlash, there'll often be criticism. And that's what it says, isn't it? Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, following Jesus and living for him, living an authentic life for Jesus, will cause some of your non-Christian friends and family to accuse you of doing the wrong thing. It will. If you stand with God in his views on marriage and sexuality and what to do with your money and how to do family and a whole range of other things where there's really clear commands, if you side with God and live that way, there will be people who accuse you of doing wrong. Our society's kind of gone that way really strongly. It used to be people just thought we were a bit different or whatever. Now they'll, they will accuse you of doing wrong of doing harm. Yep, the Christians are the problem living like this. But but look how it goes on. They'll accuse you of doing wrong, but where does it go? But they'll see your good deeds and they'll glorify God on the day he visits. There's hope for our friends and family who don't yet know Christ and the hope comes from them hearing the gospel and then seeing it lived out. And even though it might be disturbing for them, there's hope that they can actually see truth in it and then in the end glorify God on the day he visits. You tell me, how does a pagan person, which just means someone who worships anything apart from the one true God, yep, how does a pagan person go from um, being a pagan to being someone who glorifies God on the day he visits, which is the final day, judgment day? How do you go to glorifying him? well they've they've become a follower of Jesus yeah they've become a christian and you as a priest has played a role in that yeah what a privilege this life is that we get to live you know what Jesus has done to make a way and our role to live like this in the strength of the holy spirit and to be mediators allowing People to come to God. You know, we, we pray and we ache for people who don't yet know Christ. Um, what a privilege to be able to live this way. Um, I'm going I'm to pray a prayer now, which is a prayer to ask God to use us as priests um, and um, give us encouragement when we feel discouraged about it. Um, but wouldn't it be wonderful if God continued to? Use us really effectively as priests to bring more and more people in the area where we live to come and be with God, meet with him. Let me pray. Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus to be the ultimate priest and to offer the ultimate sacrifice to bridge the gap between sinful humanity and you in your perfect holiness. Thank you so much that a way has been made so that we can now, by faith and trust in Jesus, enter confidently into your presence. What an incredible privilege. Lord, would you help us to see the privilege and draw near constantly in our life? Would you help us persevere with you until the end? And would you help us to spur each other on and see the role that we can have in building up and encouraging each other. And Lord, to see that you now call us a priesthood and give us this responsibility of mediating between a holy God and people, what a privilege, what a privilege. Lord, would you help us to live as priests who speak and declare your praises, And would you help us live as priests who have authentic lives to back up our words? Please work by your spirit in us and through us, Lord, so that more and more of the ones you've made and love come by faith and put their trust in Jesus and you get more of the glory that you are due for your incredible work in your son. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.